This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's a Wednesday and today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Layla Atassi, filling in for Chris Quinn, who is still on vacation. I'm joined this morning by Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. We have a lot to talk about this morning, so let's get to the news. We've learned much more in the past 24 hours about the case of 25-year-old Jalen Walker, who family attorneys say was shot 60 times by Akron police last Monday after a chase by vehicle and then on foot. So let's begin with what we know about the Akron Police Department's pursuit policy and, and whether it appears officers followed it that night. Laura, can you please walk us through that? Corey Schaefer did a great story about this. Uh, tell, us, tell us what he learned. Yes, the, basically police followed their procedure on the night of the, sh- of the chase. That it wasn't, there have been comparisons to this 137 shots case in Cleveland in, from 2012. And that is where two people were in a car, they were downtown, their car backfired. They ended up with a third of the city's police units on them chasing and ended up in a parking lot in East Cleveland showered with 137 bullets. So that was the kind of comparison a lot of people said because it seemed like an out-of-control chase. But records show that the Akron police officers followed the department's chase policy and that uh, only the officers who needed permission to join the chase after it began, they received it from a supervisor who was giving orders during this six-minute pursuit. And every department has a different chase policy. Kaylee Remington uh, was part of our East Cleveland project. They chased so many people in East Cleveland, so we had a really big project last year looking at that. A lot of these chase policies are really similar. That's because they follow standards. But the Akron Police Department chase policy does, does not limit officers to pursue people for only specific criminal offenses. Unlike Cleveland, that has to be where there's accused of committing felonies of violence or stopping imminent danger to the public. So... Um, In Akron, it basically just says that there needs to be immediate or potential danger if the suspect remains at large. And the police chief said in the press conference on Sunday that it went from being a routine traffic stop to a public safety issue when there was a gunshot fired from the car. So that is the distinction. So it is so so there has to be. So if the suspect remains at large and the public is at danger, right, then the chase can can ensue. That's what the the litmus test is. Exactly. And so two cars are allowed to be in pursuit under the department policy. Anyone else has to receive permission from a supervisor. Uh, The transcript shows that these officers requested permission. Uh, Then there was a supervising officer who ordered other cars to get ahead of the chase and block intersections from crossing traffic. Um, They never actually got to that point because he stopped the car and jumped out of it before the police Mm -hmm. cars that were stopped there. Well, so the city hasn't released the full body camera footage of the officer who tried to pull Walker over, right? And and that that feels like that's a key piece of the puzzle here. I don't know if it exists. Really? You, it's not on all the time. You have to push huh. a button. And then oh, it gets to true. 30 seconds before. So I don't mm. believe there is, and I could be wrong, but I don't believe there is act- uh, footage from that officer uh, 
pulling him over. And there are well, no dash cams in Akron we know We know that Walker was pulled over for some kind of vehicle violation. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they're still not saying what that was. Mm-hmm. They are not. And they're saying a traffic infraction and a equipment violation. And while I've heard broken taillight, and we can talk later about another chase, that's something that the police chief said that BCI is going to be investigating, that the, the officers hadn't given their statements yet. And... BCI and the Attorney General's office, that would be part of their investigation. I mean, I'll admit, I, I've been skeptical about why this this officer decided to chase Walker based on the tame nature of, of a traffic stop. Corey's mm-hmm. story explains that within 40 seconds of the chase, Walker had, you know, ostensibly fired a weapon out of his window, which escalated the chase and changed the dynamic completely. So I completely get that that could really quickly escalate a traffic stop but mm-hmm. i also get that the officer got the necessary permission to participate in this chase once it was underway but i i want to know more about why it started in the first place because exactly. when you decide to pursue someone at high speeds you're endangering the lives of everyone in the path of that chase that risk better be far outweighed by the risk of letting that guy go and if you're talking about someone you tried to pull over for a broken taillight I just don't know if you're clearing that bar. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think that's a, hu- a really good point. And it, it does raise questions. What's really fascinating is that there was a similar chase of the same car in New Franklin, um, mm. a nearby community, the night before. That pursuit lasted two minutes. It reached speeds of 49 miles an hour and was called off when the driver crossed over the city line into Coventry Township. We know it was the same car. We don't know if Jalen Walker was driving. His family Mm. attorneys made it sound like he was because he talked about a similar chase. And he was the only person in the car. According to the police report from that city, the car didn't have plate lights. One of the rear taillights was broken. But because of the minor nature of this violation and because the license plate had been recorded, they stopped pursuing. But they still did a two-minute pursuit over a broken taillight. Mm -hmm. Wow. And also, too, you know, and and it could have fallen out. But, you know, if he did shoot at officers, wouldn't a casing have been in the car? It might not have fallen inside the car. So and have they done any like, uh, you know, uh, what do they call it? uh, Powder tracing or whatever on the gun to see if it was fired recently. I mean, there's a lot of open questions here. Yeah, I guess we're still waiting for those pieces of the uh, of the investigation. Um, I think that the BCI investigation is going to be thorough like i don't think we're going to see that anytime immediately Mm -hmm. and then they'd probably take it to a grand jury yeah you're listening to today in ohio tragically we've learned that just weeks earlier jaylen walker's girlfriend also had died a violent death what do we know about that, Lisa? Oh, this is a horrible, horrible story. 27-year-old Jamisha Beasley, who was uh, Walker's fiance, she was involved in an accident on May 28th on I-71 in Warren County, which is down in southwest Ohio. She was riding in a slow-moving van near Lebanon, and it was rear-ended by an 18-wheeler. Beasley was not wearing a seatbelt. She was ejected from the van and was struck by another vehicle going south 
southbound, which fled the scene. They haven't been able to find that vehicle or make any arrests. Beasley's sister and mother and a friend, Andre Keys, were in the van with her. They were treated for injuries at a nearby hospital. Their current conditions are unknown, but not known to be serious. I know that we at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer have reached out to Beasley and Keys for comment and also uh, Walker's attorneys to see what happens. But, you know, a, a, a gold wedding band was found in Walker's car. So obviously he was bereft. They were, you know, said to be Mm -hmm. inseparable. You know, they spent all their time together. And for her to die in such a sudden and gruesome way probably really did a number on him. Yeah, just an unthinkable set of events. I mean, Jalen Walker, until this brush with police, appeared to have no criminal record at Mm. all. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Exactly. No priors Mm. at all. One can only imagine the kind of anguish he was experiencing in the weeks after losing his partner in this really gruesome hit mm-hmm. skip. Just terrible. You're listening to Today in Ohio. And and how has the community been grappling with the Jalen Walker story since the release of the police body camera footage over the weekend? Protests in downtown Akron seemed largely peaceful, but did that change in the past 24 hours? Laura, it felt like things had gotten really intense out there. What's the latest? So it did on Sunday night. There were 50 people arrested that on Sunday. That was the day the body cam videos were released. There were big rallies planned, Some one by the NAACP. Most of that stayed very calm and orderly. And remember, both Jalen Walker's family and officials, everyone had been asking protesters. They said, please, you know, protest, show your anger, but keep it peaceful. We don't want to see any more violence in the city. And it stayed like that until late at night. That's when um, about there were about 100 broken windows and doors downtown, 19 buildings damaged. There was tear gas dispersed. No one, as far as I know, was hurt. And all of the business owners, Sean McDonald went down to talk to them in downtown Akron and said, this is just financial. These things can come back, but life can't be brought back. So they, they were very cognizant that the tragedy of a life taken was more important than windows broke that said the city put a curfew in they were trying to keep it calm on monday there were no arrests it was pretty calm i think people went down to the mayor's house about 100 people maybe and then dispersed by nine o'clock then last night tuesday night there was another curfew which they're planning to lift today i haven't i don't know if they actually are because they were going to lift it if everything was peaceful but they ended up using tear gas again last night No one was arrested, but they were trying to disperse them at that nine o'clock curfew. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. You mentioned the 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 attitude and the feeling of the 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 bar, you know, the uh, business owners downtown. And I'm always struck when I hear comments like like the one that you mentioned, um, Terrence Shavers, who co-owns Perfect Pour, the the bar and grill Mm -hmm. that was damaged in Akron. His his bar just had opened four months four months ago and, and right. he has no idea how much it'll cost to repair the damage but he told sean exactly what you said that the financial things can always be brought back but a life cannot and i mean i don't think anyone would have begrudged the guy had he instead expressed some frustration about what he had just what had just happened to his new restaurant right. but instead mm-hmm. his comments you know were the the picture of grace and empathy and I don't know. I guess we see so little of that these days that we should just spotlight it when we get the chance, right? I, mean, I agree with you. I think mm-hmm. people are keeping this in perspective. I think the entire community is saddened and outraged by what they saw in those videos, that barrage of, of gunfire that killed Jalen Walker. And 
well, so, I mean, the city, I, I do think that the mayor, the police chief, they had this press conference. They're very transparent. They have a city ordinance that requires the body cam video to be released within seven days. They waited the full seven days, but then they they spoke. To, I, I didn't feel like they were trying to hide anything mm-hmm. once they did talk. It would have been nice to get some more information earlier, but they were very empathetic. The mayor called the video heartbreaking. You know, the deputy mayor said this could have been my son. They said Jalen Walker sounds like a great person. They weren't trying to paint him as a a menace. So I, I don't think any, it has been a more muted, you know, nuanced response. The city canceled its Rib White and Blue Festival, which is a big tradition over three days over the long weekend. And that's always held downtown and gets, you know, so businesses look forward to that influx of people and money spent at their businesses. So this did hurt them having no commerce downtown for the entire weekend and then have um, the the windows broken and they, they worry about public perception, which reminds me of two years ago in downtown Cleveland, right? Remember when the Heinen's was looted oh, and yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. Geiger's ever came back. And downtown is having a tough time anyway because of the pandemic because people aren't going into the offices. So right. it's, um, it's a tough thing for business owners to, to try to make a go of it right now. Right, right. And did you say that the curfew is lifted today? I, I, everything is I kind need of to check that out. It was supposed to lift today, but they it said was, that was yeah. if there was no violence. And with tear gas last night, I, I don't know. Okay. And, right. it, you know, in reporting I read is that they threw the tear gas as people were dispersing anyway. So it's, I think they were in front of the Summit County Courthouse last night, I believe. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. This is all very strange. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade last month means organizations that support child adoption and foster care must brace themselves for an influx of children into those systems. Reporter Laura Hancock took a closer look at exactly what kind of impact Ohio should expect. What did she find, Lisa? Well, she talked to the executive director of Adoption Network Cleveland, uh, Betsy Norris, who said, we are, quote, in uncharted territory. There are so many unknowns, and they are very, very worried about what you said is an influx of children into their systems. Uh, Organizations throughout the greater Cleveland and Northeast Ohio area are reviewing their staffing and fundraising opportunities. They're expecting increased demand. So let's let's look at some numbers. So there are about 20,000 abortions a year in Ohio, right now. Uh, about 1% of unmarried Ohio women place their children for adoption. They expect that that could increase to as much as 9%. Um, also unknown, how many kids end up in foster care when their parents have the children, but then later surrender them or lose custody, and then they end up in the child welfare system. Right now, we have 15,348 foster children in Ohio, 2,369 of them right here in Cuyahoga County. That's the highest number statewide. This is according to data from the uh, Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. And there are 3,238 kids available for adoption statewide. We had 511 children removed from their homes just in the month of June. So these are all these unknowns that Betsy Norris is talking about. You know, we don't know. And the number of foster families is dropping. So they have to build up the ranks of, you know, families who will take in foster kids. You know, I'm so glad Laura Hancock wrote this story. Another another Laura Hancock story I'm just grateful to see this week. It's, it's so 
obnoxious to me when anti-choice folks throw out that line, well, you know, if a woman doesn't want her baby, she should just put it up for adoption instead of getting an abortion. I mean, how obtuse do you have to be to not realize how dramatically an abortion ban would impact those already strained foster and adoption systems? The math, like you laid out, Lisa, is so straightforward, and it would blow your mind if you spend a full minute thinking about it. I mean, over 15,000 kids are in some form of foster care or alternative care situation in the state, which means they're not with their parents. Hundreds Mm -hmm. of these are eligible for adoption. And each year, until now, 20,000 abortions were performed in Ohio, as you said. So... Once the state bans abortions completely, which is on its way, folks, that Mm -hmm. number will be zero abortions. So imagine 20,000 babies being born each year Mm -hmm. into not only untenable life circumstances, but there isn't even an adequate safety net that can hold them all. Right. So I this know if, is going to be catastrophic if for the state. If they care so much about the babies, about these children, then where are the social services? Like, right. wh- where are all the bills to provide child care and maternal leave and extra support for, you know, for women and children? I don't see that coming. I mean, if you care about these babies and these children, and that's what you say, that's all about life, then give them a good, decent start at a life. Right. 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 And don't, you know, just say, oh, just have your kid, it'll be fine, and then it's not fine. I think the number that really hit me was that 511 kids removed from homes just in one month last month. That's frightening to me. You know, if that's any kind of average, you know, that just adds to the overall burden. And I think what Laura's story said is, you know, they estimate a 9% increase about adoptions at birth, right? And these are just guesses. I don't think you can put a number on it really but that there would be more kids obviously that the parents try to raise but might end up in the foster system Mm. later and if they are taken from their homes these are kids that are probably going to be experiencing trauma and less than ideal life situations and then obviously that that has huge mental health implications for the entire family right and we do not have adequate mental health help help in ohio and you know it's hard to have an older child adopted. It's hard to get a child who has behavioral issues adopted. Like these are not all going to be sweet little babies wrapped in bunting. You hand to Mm -hmm. a a sweet little white babies wrapped in bunting. Yes. Open your eyes. Ohioans think this out. Think this out. You're listening to today in Ohio. Can State Attorney General Dave Yost force prosecutors in their jurisdictions to prosecute abortion-related cases that run afoul of Ohio's heartbeat law? Seth Richardson spoke to one legal expert who shed a little light on that topic. So what did he say? Laura. It's not looking likely. Basically, it's because of this idea of prosecutorial discretion, that the idea is there are so many laws on the books that prosecutors cannot possibly bring charges on all of them. I mean, the really basic example is jaywalking, right? You can't prosecute every person for jaywalking. You would do nothing else. So there's not a good way to force the prosecutors who are elected by the people to specifically enforce the laws you want them to enforce as attorney general. I think, 
you know, I think Chris Quinn was hearing from some readers who were insisting that Dave Yost should be able to just kind of bigfoot his way into Cuyahoga County and demand that Mike O'Malley take up these cases. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he got <laughs> signed on along with the uh, Columbus City prosecutor. Exactly. And the Franklin County prosecutor saying they are not going to prosecute these crimes. Right. Well, better. I mean, <laughs> they're not crimes yet, but if they are, they would not prosecute right. them. And, and, you know, Chris, he, he got the sense that that uh, these these people who were writing into him were under the assumption that a prosecutor is required by law to prosecute every crime. But clearly, like you said, Laura, that's not the case. Prosecutors serve their communities. And if it's the prosecutor's prerogative that this or any other law is not in the interest of justice for their community, they're not bound to prosecute those cases. And some good examples would be communities that declare themselves to be sanctuary cities where immigration officials won't find cooperation among local law enforcement or prosecutors when it comes to prosecuting prosecuting undocumented immigrants. And another example would be communities where prosecutors participate in efforts to decriminalize marijuana. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's there are just so many other priorities for prosecutors that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, they, there's no way that they could just, you know, take on every single crime that, you know, like you said, Laura. So, man, I hope that this movement of defiance among prosecutors continues to grow and Dave Yost can't find a single one to do his bidding in the state. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did Cuyahoga County Council do this week to encourage more attorneys to serve as court assigned counsel for indigent defendants? This is uh, an uplifting story in some ways, Lisa. What What happened? It is. Um, on Tuesday, the Cuyahoga County Council unanimously approved an increase in fees to represent indigent clients. It was at $4,000. That compensation hasn't changed since 2014. So now they've increased it to a maximum of $9,000. They've done this because the list of available attorneys, what is called assigned counsel, has been shrinking. Uh, Administrative Juvenile Court Judge Thomas O'Malley said 15 years ago, the signed counsel list was six pages long. Now it's only one and a half pages. He said for a lot of attorneys, it's just not cost effective to come to court and represent indigent clients. There were 9,222 cases in 2019 that were assigned counsel. Um, There were 7,844 last year in the general division. So more money means that more attorneys and perhaps better outcomes for defendants as well. It's just not about compensation. And it's also giving equal justice to people who can't afford their own attorney. This legislation is effective immediately. Then the rates will undergo review two times a year in January and July to be adjusted as needed. Well, that, you know, after eight years of no movement at all, that's good news. It is. You know, this always struck me as the most unjust aspect of the criminal justice system. And it's so hard to address it because of limited resources. But when I covered courts, I saw this play out so so often with indigent clients. And from one courtroom to the other, you could compare the outcomes of their cases to the outcomes of those with means to pay for an attorney. And I remember one case when I was reading the story yesterday, this came to mind, this case in which the defendant was accused of sexual misconduct with a child, and he could afford to pay his own attorney. And and this attorney, who is one of the very best, and if he's listening, he will remember this case so clearly. 
He built a life-size replica of the inside of the apartment where the sexual abuse was said to have occurred, just to demonstrate for the court that there's no way it could have happened in such close proximity to where the mother was sitting, Mm. playing cards without her noticing that this crime had occurred. And that defendant was exonerated. And for indigent defendants, you'd never see that kind of high-level representation. You, you might as well lock them up and throw away the key because the question is how much justice can you afford, right? Right, yeah. And, and it's – go ahead, Lisa. No, and, no, go ahead. It's, it's, just, it's not necessarily that court-appointed attorneys are bad attorneys. It's, it's that they're getting $4,000 to work a murder case, in, in, you know, in, according to Caitlin's story. Those are serious, complex cases that probably call for tons of hours of work. Yeah. But if you've got a family of support, just to make $80,000 a year as an attorney, you need to be taking 20 murder cases a year. And I'm sure most attorneys at service assigned counsel take on much more work than that. You're going to be spread thin among your clients. You know, right? and, and, and that doesn't even count the time in, you know, not in court, the discovery and the, the, the oh, gathering yeah. of the evidence and the witnesses. I mean, you know, $4,000 doesn't go very far in that kind of situation. Exactly. It's about time. And I'm so glad to see the, the court moving in this direction. And especially since, you know, it, part of this is is dealing with the representation of juveniles. And we're seeing that juveniles are getting caught up in much more serious cases. And they deserve good representation, too. The better representation they get, the better the outcomes on their cases. And we know that in the juvenile court system, you know, they, they need good outcomes so that they get better rehabilitation earlier in life, right? So you're listening to Today in Ohio. One of our newest reporters, John Tucker, made his Cleveland.com debut this weekend with a terrific story about once hardcore Browns fans grappling with whether to abandon their allegiance to the team following the controversial Deshaun Watson signing. What did these fans have to say, Laura? It, well, they had a lot of things to say, but it is divided. It's not all one way. Not everyone is abandoning the team, but a lot of people that John talked to are. And this is not just like a casual fan. These are people with family traditions, you know, who buy a lot of merchandise, who plan their fall weekends around when the Browns play. So they're talking about not going to any more games, no more watching them on TV, no more buying the gear. And John writes, um, and John is a great writer. I'm so glad he's on staff. He says, the Watson spurred attrition and the financial implications that accompany it can't be discounted. And that's based on interviews with more than a dozen longtime fans, and they pledged not to watch a game this year. And the Browns, he did talk to them to ask about season ticket numbers. And they basically said the renewal rates have been strong and consistent in what they've been in the past years. But this is a big deal money-wise because the scandals put female fans in particular at risk of alienation. And in the past couple of years, the NFL has seen a huge spike among women supporters. In 2020, they accounted for nearly half the league's fan base and nearly half of the merchandise purchases. And, I mean, that's huge. And so if you lose those fans and you lose the families, uh, it's going to be a big deal for the the Browns. For one thing, um, John looked at a Facebook group reserved for female Browns fans that mm-hmm. boasts 6,000 members. And immediately after the Watson deal, 100 people left. And since then, it's been this the daily prime topic of discussion. I mean, this is not going away. I wonder, I, you know, I, sh- I wanted to go take a look at what that discussion was like, though, because 
I thought about that after I read that a hundred of them left. A mm-hmm. hundred of 6,000 is only like (laughs) 1.6%. So, you know, I was so glad to hear the voices of several very principled women in John Tucker's story who said that, you know, they're lifelong Browns fans, but they were going to turn their back on the team on account of feeling like the team had turned their back on women or more more specifically survivors of sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. But but, you know, Chris Quinn was saying he still believes we're going to see empty seats in the stadium on account of all this. And I think he's wrong. That's what I and said. I, I, I said I'd say deciding with Ted Dieten on this one. I yeah, mean, I agree. I, I think I think that you know, I, and I think that there are there are a couple forces to blame for that. You know, you've 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 got that win at all cost fan base, but then you've got this huge contingent of women who are I hate to say it, but they're kind of part of the patriarchy. You know, they're the ones who doubt the women's stories a little bit or say that they were consensual. Or that the the women should have just walked away from him or whatever they were they were represented in John's story. Mm-hmm. There's there's no recognition of that power differential that exists between a pro football player and a massage therapist who's paid to perform a service. So those wim- women who belong to the patriarchy and there are many many they're going to renew their season tickets. Am I well, wrong? I mean, well, and I think that some women who say I'll never watch another Browns game again, how do we know that they aren't? I mean, as soon as the season starts or if they get in the playoffs or, or you know, hopefully go to the Super Bowl. I mean, I, I just don't see and we can't follow up with them and say, oh, you know, are you still anti Browns? You know, we should do I, that. Follow up and say, I hey. do think there are some principled people that this is very a, a serious just betrayal. I agree. And, they and I will... think John, go ahead, Laura. I'm sorry. That's okay. The, the mayor of University Heights says that he's going to spend his Saturdays raking leaves, attending pumpkin festivals. He's not watching the Browns anymore, which as a person who doesn't watch Browns games, let me tell you, it's the best time of the year to do errands because <laughs> there is no one on the road or in a store at all. But he says Deshaun Watson is either a predator or a creep, probably both. I can't root for that guy. And if you can't root for the quarterback, you can't root for the team um which i think sums up how a lot of people feel but you're right when the season starts uh, do people just like sweep it out of mind especially i mean there are still four civil suits that are left to you know probably go to trial maybe um so it's still hanging out there and we don't know what the punishment is going to be from the league yet he might not play a game this year mm-hmm. yeah well, I thought that John did such a great job of capturing all sides and so mm-hmm. many voices. It's a terrific read. Everyone mm-hmm. should check it on on Cleveland.com. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that does it for a Wednesday. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Join us Thursday for another discussion of the news. Mm-hmm.